bit of the winter season where we have the Seahawks against the evil empire, um, Bill Belichick and Darth Brady. Guys, we got to make our allegiances known right off the bat. And so you know, you know where I stand. Um, but loving, isn't it interesting about the Super Bowl? You don't have to be dialed in at all to football, right? I was talking to, to Joyce over here before the service, and it's like, are you going to watch the Super Bowl? And it's like, well, I'm going to be in the room where the Super Bowl is going on, right? And so, so there's food, and there's people hanging out, and it's like this shared American you know, experience people all across the fruited plain gathered together to, 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 do their, to do their thing, to watch the commercials. But oh, by the way, parents, but not here, okay? You have, your children have a commercial-free viewing experience tonight here for the Super Bowl, Bowl party that the Student Ministries is having. But we all love being at the same party, doing the same thing, feeling like we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves, which is really, um, in essence, if to, to boil it right down, is really what we've been talking about in Acts 13. You know, last week we, we talked about this idea that God really does change the world through the church. He really does. That's not just pastor speak. That's not just some pie in the sky. I mean, that, that is real. And we talked about what does it look like or what marks a church that really wants to change the world. And we, we, look, we, we took a snapshot of this church in Antioch, a group of people who were mobilized for something bigger than themselves. And I'll be honest, as we kind of got feedback from some of you and heard from some of you about that sermon, and, and as, you, as we learned about that church together, how they had a, a team and they were all seeking the Lord and there was sacrifice and how the Word of God was just having its way in people's lives and how people were putting aside their preferences for the sake of the gospel. I mean, I'll be honest, folks, I think, I think that really resonated for a lot of us. I think our hearts, for many of us, said, said yes, I, I want us to be, I want to be, I want our church family to be vested in something that matters. You know, I, when, when I want my life to, to echo for eternity, I want what we do here not just to be some ceremonial ritual thing that we do as religious folk but man what would it look like for god to do that here i think it really resonated for so much of us however all of us know that there is a distinction of wanting to do something or having a conviction about something and then actually doing it right there's a, there's a world of difference. You know, back in 1990, the FDA and all their infinite wisdom, okay, des- decided that, that, that companies needed to start producing the nutritional labels on food, right? And, you know, so you go to Publix now, you can look at all the, all the unhealthy things you're putting in your body. And we know all you whole fooders out there, you're just like got your magnifying glass on your little nutritional stuff. That doesn't make any difference. Never mind, I, I didn't say that. Come on, Okay. But caloric intake, product labeling, but now it's, it's the deal. Like, it's required for everybody. So whether you go to Publix or AMC or FSU football games or vending machines or restaurants, I mean, I mean go to Tucker Dukes, the warning label on that burger says instant death, okay, if you, if you eat that. And it is the most wonderful, oh, you just might as well saw, off, uh, saw open your sternum and stick that whole thing right in your heart. It is, like, incredible. But they did a study, very interesting, and, and 85% of the people in this, in this study group 
said they love the idea of putting warning labels or food labels on, on food. They loved that idea. And now think about that, 85%, I mean, to get Americans to agree on 85% of anything, okay, at all, I mean, that, that, that's a miracle in itself. And they did a seven-year study, seven-year study. And what they found at the end of those seven years is that there was virtually no change in eating habits at all of Americans. Isn't that interesting? That's just like us Americans. We're all for something. We're all about eating nutritional, but we don't do it, okay? It didn't move the needle at all. So you can have conviction, but that's a far different thing than change. So here, here's a question for us. What could possibly derail us from the unity and the enthusiasm and the resonance that we had with this church in Antioch last week in Acts 13, and then the reality of life today. You see, I think one of the reasons convictions fall by the wayside, and this is particularly true of, of Americans, I think, is that there is a real naivete about the cost. Oftentimes, Four Oaks, we just don't adequately consider what it takes. You know, it's like getting that Christmas gift of the one-year membership at Premier, right? Anybody, anybody get that gift? And you're jazzed about all the weight you're going to lose, and you're resolved that this is the time we're finally all going to put it together, and you're going to be nutritious, and you show up for that first appointment with that trainer, okay, who's been working out probably about nine hours that day, right? And, 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 and you say, you want me to do what? You want me to put what in my body? You want me to subject myself to this thing? And, and I won't even ask how many of you went to the gym the first week of January never to return. I won't even like point that out here, okay? Because we're, we're in a culture of grace, okay? There's no, no condemnation. But right, we know there is a cost in these things, right? And it's the same thing when we invest in other people's lives. Four Oaks, when, when we endeavor to leverage our lives into the lives of other people for the sake of the gospel, there will be a cost. And we need to know that on the front end so that we're not getting to the end of, proverbially, the end of January and saying, I'm done. Okay. This, this is not what I signed up for. Acts 13 and 14 which really details for us Paul's first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, um, is a perfect window into the cost that has to be considered. What is it going to take? What will be demanded of you? What will be demanded of me? And for Oaks, this is important because, because at, we love to think, again, as Americans, that we can have it all. We can have comfort and ease and every our life perfectly ordered and private and autonomized but at the same time make incredible impact and give ourselves guys it, that does not exist okay that reality is not is not it's, it's not real and as we drop into paul's first missionary journey we're going to find that clearly to be the case but please understand for folks there's a there, there's seemingly Bad news. There's always that's always seems like bad news, right? When you calculate the cost, but as we're going to see, there is incredible joy. There is incredible meaning. Um, there is incredible gospel impact to be had. So we're not going to read the whole passage. We're going to drop down in, into strategic sections, beginning in Acts 13. 
verse 13. And, and we're going to identify three costs this morning. Three costs. But before we do that, we need the Lord's help. Poor Oaks, we need this help. Lord Jesus, I, I really believe we sit before you this morning as a people who desire to leverage our lives. I think we want to make a gospel impact. I think last week's word resonated for so many of us. But Lord, we, we're, we confess we're going to just, we're going to piddle away our lives. We're, we're going we're gonna to devolve into, into passivity or irrelevance unless you show up, unless you give life to your people through your word. So Lord, we're asking you to do that. Lord, we want to stand before you one day as a people and say, we were a good steward of what we have been entrusted with. Who's to say how many talents you've given four oaks? Whether it's one, three, five, ten, we don't know. But we want to be faithful to what you have given. And there's only one way to eternal impact that is through Jesus Christ into people's lives with your work, through the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we're asking that you would do that. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three costs. Three costs. And guys, there, there's many costs. There's many, there's so many things in this passage that we could pick out. But I'm gonna, I want us to focus on three because I think these three are particularly relevant for us. And, and, the, and the first is this. If we endeavor to impact people's lives with the gospel, with the good news, vested in them spiritually, we will experience heartbreaking desertions. We will experience heartbreaking desertions. Look at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Philanthia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You know, this is, this is not your cousin's missionary, right? <laughs> this is the Apostle Paul. Um, um, this is the first missionary journey. This is the time where the gospel leaps from this little postage stamp of sand in the Middle East, and it literally transforms the world and goes to all the nations. It starts right here, and this is not a very, this is a pretty ominous beginning, isn't it? John Mark Bales. And this was just not any desertion. This was a high profile desertion. And if I can just give a quick shout out to all the nerds here this morning, okay? I'll say it really quickly. This is Anakin Skywalker to the dark side. Okay, there you go. They're, they're, all the nerds say amen, okay? See, chapter 12 tells us that John Mark is a native of Jerusalem. He is the son, it says, of Mary, the owner of the home where the disciples were meeting. And, and scholars talk about this, and, and it seems likely that, in fact, this place where the early church would continue to meet in Jerusalem was, in fact, the very same place that the disciples gathered in the upper room with Jesus the night he was betrayed. We think about John, uh, Mark's gospel, okay, this Mark, who, who's talking about here, think about that for a second, um, wrote as an eyewitness account, he was the young man who was following behind Jesus, and that is simply all to say this, this was a known commodity. John Mark was well-healed. He was known in the Christian community, and he had journeyed as kind of the young eagle. He was the young buck. He was the rising star. He had so much gospel 
promise. He was known to everyone. He came with Barnabas and Paul from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and here it tells us right off the bat, he couldn't hack it. And we don't know why. He might have been discouraged or tired or hard or homesick. And and to be honest, and, and some of us know this, when we experience desertions in our life, oftentimes it doesn't really even matter so much always what the reason is. It doesn't take away the pain. He was just gone. And and here's the truth in advertising. The warning label first for us this morning, Four Oaks, is that one of the costs of ministry, one of the costs of investing ourselves into people's lives, of making an impact, and, and for anyone who've done this for over a second knows this to be true, what is it? People will what? Disappoint us. That's what people do. The reason people need Jesus is the same reason that they disappoint us. People are needy, people are frail, people are undependable, people are unpredictable, people are desperate for God's help and mercy. This is all good news this morning, isn't it, Four Oaks, okay? This, this, is, this is all of us. And this happened to Paul repeatedly in his ministry. We think about 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul's at the end of his life. You know, understand, this is the, this is the Goliath of the Christian faith four missionary journeys. He's written over half of the New Testament, and here he is at the end of his life and from a prison cell, and what does he say? At first, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. But what does he say? But all deserted me. All. All deserted me. Paul understood betrayal. Paul understood heartbreaking desertions. You know, um, and I don't tell this story to elicit sympathy, but only as to, to illustrate the pain of what's involved when we wade into people's lives. I remember it was the Christmas of 2004, and everything was sweetness and light at that point in our life with three kids, and I'm sure we were, we were basking in the afterglow of our annual Christmas trip to Disney or some such thing. But anyway, we were settling down, right, for a nice family Christmas. And I did what, 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 no, what no pastor should ever do. I went to check my inbox, okay, at the church, and there it was, the letter. Okay? You ever gotten one of those? Do you know what I mean? Like, the letter, not just a letter, but like, the letter. <laughs> and this was written by someone who at one point had been a dear friend. We had known, known, known him since he had since we had first moved to Tallahassee eight years previously. We had served together, been in leadership together, very involved in our, with our families and broken bread and watched games and gone to places. And, and this was a letter indicating not only that they were leaving the church, but they proceeded to point out all the reasons that they were leaving the church, most many of which involved me. And, and you know, it wasn't, and some of them were really true, by the way, totally true. Uh, total, I totally needed to hear some of the things in that letter. It wasn't so much what he was doing, it was how he was doing it. It was to my back and right before Christmas and didn't give me the opportunity to engage him. And I just remember that pain just kind of hung over that Christmas like a, like a damp cloud. And I don't tell that to, to elicit your sympathy or I did something noble. No, no, no. I just simply say as an illustrative point, 
This is just part of what happens when we step into the arena of investing ourselves to impact other people's lives with the good news. Let me ask you a question. I wonder how many of you today are still feeling the sting of a high-profile desertion in your life. And maybe it's a child. I mean, there can be no more painful desertion than that, can there? Someone you've invested your whole life in, but seemingly gone astray. Maybe it's someone who was in your fellowship group for years, or your accountability partner, or someone you worked in ministry with, or, or for some of you who know all too well the pain of being deserted by a spouse. Because none of us, none of us, if we, unless we completely insulated ourselves and lived in this, and we were the boy in the bubble, can insulate ourselves from the fact that when we invest ourselves in people's lives, heartbreaking desertions happen. And the question for you, and the question for me, and the question for us as a church is what do we do? What do we do? What do Paul and Barnabas do? Look back at the text in verse 14. It seemingly doesn't say much, but it says so much. It says, but they went on. They went on from Persia and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. As when it says it went on, the idea is they pressed forward. They pressed ahead. And when it says they sat down in the synagogue, it would have been very customary at the time for a, for a traveling band of Jewish teachers like Paul was a part of to come and to make themselves available to speak in the synagogue. And it says that Paul did precisely that. He and his companions came and sat down and it, and it says so little, but it says so much because this is Paul's way of making himself available to God, of climbing right back into the gospel ring and pressing forward. He would not be deterred. Here, here, here's a personal question for you, Four Oaks, as, as we're kind of sifting this for ourselves. Where, where in your life when you think about desertions and people that have caused you pain or people that have caused you hurt, are you not pressing on? Where you are not making yourself available to go to the synagogue, so to speak, metaphorically? Where are you kind of still sidelined and sitting this one out? Because the pain of investing yourself is just too much. Paul totally understood that. But, but, but you know who else understood that? It was Jesus. Jesus totally understood that. The 12 men, the, the people he invested himself the most at the end of his life were gone. And it tells us in Hebrews 13 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The same can be said for Paul, for the joy that was set before him of seeing people's lives impacted with the gospel, he went on. He sat down. And you may say, Pastor Paul, I, I've been burned. I've been burned. And it seems so 
difficult to climb back into that ring. And I don't know what the ring is for you. Maybe it's the one life person you've been investing in. Maybe it's the person in your fellowship group or the son or the daughter. or the, I don't know what that context is for you. But we can look to where Paul looked to draw the strength necessary because, because for Oaks, it is alien to us. We don't possess that strength in and of ourselves. Paul tells us where to go. Back to 2 Timothy 4, 17. Remember, he's just said, everyone's abandoned me. Some of you can identify with that today or have identified with it in the past. I promise you, if you haven't, you will identify with it at some point in your future. But Paul says this, they all abandoned me, but what? But the Lord stood by me. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Folks, if everyone deserts us in this life, if our labor and investment for Christ cost us dearly, know this, the gospel's not just for them, the gospel's for you. The gospel's for you in that place. The Lord stands by you. If you're in Christ, the Lord loves you. He accepts you that's where the strength comes from to go sit down in the synagogue folks there's a cost involved people will betray us and and but it can get worse point two there's good news in this i promise okay we will be subjected to painful misunderstandings we will be subjected to painful misunderstandings. Verses 16 and 41, we won't read all that. It goes on to record at that point what Paul said to the Jews in the synagogue. And he preached the gospel. And he was using the Old Testament to show them that they were looking for a Messiah. And Christ, in fact, was that Messiah, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He was, he was, this was Paul's most fervent way of loving them. He was giving them the greatest news, the best news, life-saving news. And let's look at how they responded to him. Verses 43 and 45 in chapter 13. It says, now after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. When it says that many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, th these were the people. They were hearing this awesome news that it's not about what they did or, or their works or religious exercise. It was about the grace of God, and their hearts were resonating. Um, they heard this message. But then it says the Jews were, who were filled with jealousy, these, these most likely were the Jewish leaders. And they did not like what was going on one bit because they were jealous of Paul. They were jealous of his attention. Um, this was like lifeblood to these people's souls. And it says here they contradicted what was spoken. Because if you ever had someone just kind of twist your words to make you look really foolish or to serve their ends or to manipulate 
someone else. Nothing can be more infuriating, right? And your words are twisted, and they were twisting Paul's words, and they were wanting to make him look foolish and heretical and crazy. And not only that, they were reviling him. Fancy word for was they were coming with guns blazing. These were personal attacks. They were destroying his credibility to these people. You know, it's marginally tolerable to be scorned when you know that you deserve it, right? When you've done something very scornable. And Prue's the teacher. She knows that wasn't a word, okay? It's hurtful, okay, to be scorned when you know you've done nothing wrong, okay? That's hurtful. But however, when you know that you had the noblest of intentions, when you know that you, what you were doing was motivated out of, the, out of a pure heart for the very best for someone else, and then you're scorned, guys, that's, that's devastating. That's devastating. That's exactly what happened to Paul. You know, in 1989, um, and, and you were around then, you, you undoubtedly remember Tiananmen Square where thousands of student protesters showed up in Beijing to protest the the oppressive communist regime there. And they were advocating for many things, but if you want to get to the heart of it, they were advocating for freedom. They wanted choice. They wanted to worship in in clear conscience. They did not want to have their lives oppressively dictated to and told whom to marry and how many kids to have. And, and, and what they were advocating for was the very best for that country. Um, and and th- they were advocating for something that would be so good for the leaders and so good for the government, but the very people that they were hoping to help crushed it, right? Do you remember that? Remember the student protester walking around in Tiananmen Square in front of the tank, and the tank would turn this way, and the student... Would, would follow, and it was this symbol of, of, of standing up for what is right, and the government put it down. As, do, you, do you see the similarities of what's happening here? Paul is jealous for the salvation of his countrymen. We know from Romans 9 that, that, that Paul's affections for the Jews were so strong, he said he would do anything for them, including to be cut off from Christ. I don't know how many of us could really say that honestly about even the deepest point of pain in someone who's deserted us. But Paul said it. It was true. Don't ever, by the way, let anyone tell you that Paul is just a cold-hearted logician, systematic theologian. No, no, no. Paul had a pastor's heart, and his heart was being broken by his countrymen. He wanted to win them for Christ. The very people he was trying to help totally maligned him, totally misunderstood him, and they put him down. And that's, by the way, what continually happened for Paul in this first missionary journey. We're not going to read all these passages, but just, just a sampling, okay? And you can look in your Bibles real quick. It says in verse 50 in, in chapter 13, they drove him out of the district, okay? Paul didn't get to saunter out of the district. He, got, he was driven out of there. It says they poisoned their mind against the brothers. That's 14, verse 2. 14, verse 19, they attempted to stone him. That does not sound like a popular gig, right? Okay, they attempted to stone him. 
Here's a question for folks. What should we do when those that we love the most and those that we have invested ourselves in, those who our hearts go out to them, in turn, turn on us, twist our words, misunderstand us, desert us, what do we do? And let, let me just make a cultural application and, and kind of broaden it here for a second. And it has to then I'll make a personal application. Because this is, this is increasingly, by the way, the position the church finds itself in culturally, right? Um, um, we, we, are, we are quickly entering an era where we're going to have to make your we're ha we have to make our allegiances known. It, it, has to, it has to be done. It must be done. It's being forced upon us. And typically in church history, Christians and churches have responded in one of two ways when those sorts of pressures are brought to bear. They either separate or accommodate. Okay, do you know what I mean by that? Oftentimes when Christians are face-to-face -face with misunderstanding and trials and persecution, they pull back. They retreat. They withdraw. They pull away. They disengage. They, they huddle up, okay, because it's safer that way, right? Or Christians can often accommodate. They will shave the edges off the truth. They will smooth things out to be more culturally palpable. They will be like Rob Bell, and they will go on Oprah, and they will write a book about marriage that doesn't talk about God. I mean, that's, that's accommodation or separation. And, guys, and I, would, I, would, I would venture to say that in many of the personal situations you might find yourself in, of people who've deserted you, people who've misunderstood you, you you've probably vacillated in one, one of those two directions. You've either like totally separated yourself and cut yourself off, or you've just gone along to get along. Just accommodate. Interesting, Paul doesn't do either of those. Because I think there is a third way. And, and it's really, I think, the gospel way. And let me illustrate it, and then I want to show you from the text where it comes from. Some of you are, are, many of you undoubtedly are familiar with the testimony and story of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a, a, a lesbian professor of women's studies at Syracuse, um, who was a militant feminist, and who is now married to a pastor, has children, and was dramatically converted. And, and I want to, this, this is a little longer, but we're going to flash the words on the screen. I, want, I just want to read you an excerpt from an interview done with her on, um, in Christianity Today, where she talks about how the people she most misunderstood and mischaracterized, okay, made a gospel way into her life. And I think there's a lot to learn by this, for folks. Separation or accommodation, there's another way. Here's her words. Stupid, pointless, and menacing. That's a great conversation starter, right? That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. A professor of English and women's studies, I was on track to becoming a tenured radical. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? After my tenure book was published, I used my posts to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against gays like me. 
To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack in the form of an article in a local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. That sounds, anybody identify with that? But one letter I received, this this is key, defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me, he's the pastor, to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know they are right? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? With the letter, Ken initiated, ready, two years, two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Ken did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. See, she was, she was still maligning, still misunderstanding. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Flo, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting. Anybody in your life? Fighting, fighting that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Flo was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion, this is important for us, was a train wreck. Brooks, you need to know that this looks great on slides, right? This looks great on a sheet of paper. It looks great as a sermon illustration. I think it looks great as a sermon illustration. This is messy. This is two years of in the muck of engaging, of pressing forward. This is not separation. This is not accommodation. This is gospel. You know, we, we think about Paul, and we think that of anyone, Paul would have the right to abandon his countrymen. And there's no question that Paul went with, where people would listen to him, and he went to the Gentiles, and that was the focus of his ministry. But Paul just kept on going, engaging his countrymen time and time again. He was just relentless. He was relentless on this first missionary journey. Again and again and again. He never forgot his countrymen. 
He just kept on persevering. Who, who's your countryman, Four Oaks? Who is that person for you? Who is that group for you? Who are those people for you? There's a cost. There's desertions. There's pain. There's misunderstanding. But there's also incredible joy. When we, folks, when we relentlessly pursue the people that God has put us in, put in our orb, despite the misunderstandings and scorn we receive, we imitate Jesus Christ. And I quoted this verse earlier. Let me quote it again. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for this is for people's joy. Folks, you're doing this for people's joy. You're doing it for your joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Third and final cost. Go this quickly and we're done. When you endeavor for Oaks to, to make a gospel eternal impact in people's lives, you will be confronted with the need for ongoing, persevering effort. The job is never done. Look at Acts 14, 21 through 23. So remember now, Paul has, they have, they have, they have navigated all the places they want to go. They have done their work, and we may think, he's done incredible work, right? He's, he's preached the gospel, people have converted, and he's invested all this time and energy. And so what does Paul do? He goes right back the same way that he started, continuing the work. Listen to what it says. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, doing what? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know, one of my favorite neurotic happy moments, so to speak, okay, is right before we leave on a trip. And so, so all the kids are like creating total mayhem in the van, okay? And Susan's out there doing whatever moms do at, during those times. And, and I'm just having my little quiet moment in the house, right? I'm turning down the air and, you know, turning the water heater down so that when people come in and try to take a shower after vacation, it's cold and they get mad at me. But anyway, nevertheless, okay, I'm doing my thing. You know, and we've been packing all day, scrubbing all day, cleaning all day, because we love to come into that pristine home, right, right after vacation. And I just love and to get that, get that just a minute of just silence, solitude, where everything is as it should be in that place. And then a week later, we come in, and how long does it last? 30 seconds, right? That's a, a bomb explodes up in that place. And entropy has ensued, right? Order to disorder. And to, and to keep a house requires just, you know this, constant care and attention. And finally, you're just like, forget it. I'm, you know, just whatever, let it go. Because have you ever noticed that people's lives are the same way? Have you ever noticed that? That ministry to people requires constant attention. Constant attention. The job is never done. There's never a time in people's lives where you can just punch out and say, my work here is completed, right? And it's the same thing with Paul. Look at what he does. He goes back to these new churches. The pain is not even dry, and he is strengthening them, encouraging them. 
He's, he's following up with them. He's installing leaders. He's warning about trials. He, these people require, like a child, constant care and attention. Folks, let me tell you something. The heart is susceptible to spiritual entropy. And left unattended, it grows hardened. And there's a lesson for all of us. There's a le- personal lesson. This is why we are constantly pushing you to fellowship group and, and Bible study and relationships and the men's retreat and all of those things because any relationship requires constant care and attention. There is no neutral ground. And when we make a decision to invest our lives in people for the sake of the gospel, we have to know we are in it for the long haul. And it requires the grace and the power that only God can provide. It never ends, this side of eternity. And it comes at great personal cost, right? Time, energy, schedules will be intruded upon. I've said it before, guys. I'll say it again, Mark Driscoll. Between family and work and ministry, you probably won't have time for a lot of other things, right? This just, it, it just requires ongoing effort. Parents, you know this, it requires ongoing effort. And for us to endure the cost, for us to persevere through all of these costs that we talk about, there, there's one thing, and I'm going to end with this, that I think we need to hang our hat on. One thing. What will sustain us in this effort? Look at verse 47 and 48 in Acts 13. I'm going to close with this. For it says, for so, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made, a, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now listen to this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word there literally is ordained. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And I know there's some of you who don't like that verse. Take that up with Jesus, okay? I find it one of the most confounding and encouraging verses in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. It's confounding because of this. No matter how much you invest in people, no matter how much blood, sweat, and tears you give, no matter how much you want people to tra- change and try to help them to, be, to, to change and to be saved, you and I just don't have the power to do it. The heart is God's dominion. And ultimately, he's the one in charge of people's souls. Our job is to be responsible. Our job is to invest. Our job is to push in. It's his job to save. Man has a complete inability to save himself, to see the kingdom, and we have to know our place. And and on one hand, that's the most confounding thing, particularly for us who love to control things and affect outcomes and this is hard, but it's also, for Oaks, the most encouraging thing because this verse tells us, make no mistake, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates hearts. It's God who saves people. It's God who awakens them. When you vest yourself, you need to know that the Holy Spirit has gone before you. He will make his word and your work effectual in people's lives. We can entrust ourselves, for Oaks, to this mission despite the cost 
because we have a sovereign, gracious God who's going before us. For Oaks, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. I don't have any massive closing illustration except to say it's worth it. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus persevered. For the joy that is set before you, for people's eternal joy, Jesus counted the cost in our place. I call us as a church to count the cost as well. Let's pray.